Well, the good news, if you uh, happen to look at your bulletin, that uh, we are this morning returning, in a sense, back to the book of Hebrews. It's been a, a while since uh, we've been there. You don't have to turn there just yet. But, uh, yeah, if you've been part of St. John's Park for oh, probably four years now, it's been that long we've been going through the book of Hebrews, um, I thought this Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, uh, for the purposes that I'll explain in a minute, this is a, a good time to get back to the book of Hebrews. I was um, also encouraged in our prayer meeting this morning, uh, Frank's prayer, where he, uh, he prayed, Lord, help us to make this day um, fresh for us. I know this is a Resurrection Sunday. Yes, we know that Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, you know, what else can we learn from that? And so I appreciated his prayer. Let's, let's make this fresh. And I trust that um, I'll be answering his prayer this morning, that it will be a, a fresh time for it. And, and in doing so, I, one of the questions that I want us to think about specifically is this. And this is what I want to pose right at the beginning. I've got a question for us. And that is, we make a very big deal every year about Jesus' resurrection, as we should. But why not his accession? How come we don't make a big deal about his ascension? Now, what do you... What do I mean by his ascension? Ascension is when, as we read at the end of Luke 24, where he goes up to heaven. And by the way, Luke records it again in the opening of his book of Acts. We celebrate his resurrection. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But why don't we celebrate his ascension? Is, is that equally important? In fact, as you know, we celebrate the incarnation, we celebrate his crucifixion, and again, we celebrate his resurrection, but not so much Jesus' ascension. Or, or for that matter, we don't celebrate his session. Probably never heard of that. What is his session? S-E-S-S-I-O-N. His session is actually is when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So again, I'm, 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 I want us to think about the importance of the resurrection, but include with that how important is the accession and the session. Next month there will be a huge hoopla over in the UK over the coronation of King Charles. Has there been a huge hoopla for King Jesus in his coronation? We know that, that there was one for Jesus when he arrived back into heaven after accomplishing his work on the earth. I, I love how Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, it, it kind of imagines what it must have been like when Jesus arrived into heaven after he was raised from the dead. He says this, quote, The effect upon those in heaven must have been incredible. We are told that there is much joy in heaven when a sinner repents. But what about the joy when Jesus who saves all who enter heaven, arrive to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. As John Owen said, no heart can conceive, much less can any tongue express the glorious reception of the human nature of Christ in heaven. Jones continues, heaven and earth were in need of reconciliation. Here Christ entered as the one who has united all things together, things in heaven and things on the earth. With his entrance into the heavenly sanctuary, the holy angels with open face beheld the Lord of glory. What they had longed for was now fulfilled. John Flavel 
considers Christ's ascent and entrance into heaven from the perspective of the Father. He says, The Father received him with open arms, rejoicing exceedingly to see him again in heaven. Therefore God is to said to receive him up in glory. For that which with respect to Christ is called ascension. And with respect to the Father called assumption. He went up and the Father received him. Yes, received him so as none ever was received before him or shall be received after him. End quote. That's something to chew on. Have you ever thought about that? What it was like when Jesus ascended and entered heaven after he had completed his work on earth? A couple, uh, or I should say the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a book recently published by Will Varner. Will's a, a good friend. He's a master's seminary, uh, rather master's university professor. He's one of Tommy's professors over there at the master's university. He's recently published a book called Passionate About the Passionate Week. And I was, I was reading it. I, I noticed he picked up on these very same questions that I'm asking here. He says, one of the most neglected doctrines in evangelical theology is the ascension along with its accompanying session, as some theologians call it. A survey of prominent evangelical systematic theology reveals that it devotes 21 pages to Jesus' crucifixion, six pages to his resurrection, and only one page to his ascension. And then it devotes over 30 pages to the theological importance of the atonement, but only one page to the theological role of both the resurrection and the ascension. Such an imbalance neglects the fact that Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and session all go together in the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. Evangelicals rightly celebrate Good Friday, rightly celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but we ignore the ascension and the session to our peril. And then he concludes, early Christians would be perplexed at our oversight, end quote. By the way, I'm not suggesting that we have three separate days, one for the resurrection and one for the ascension and one for the session. What I am suggesting is maybe in a fresh way, every time this year day comes, uh, comes up every year, that instead of calling it Resurrection Sunday, we call it exalt, Exaltation Day. Exaltation Day, because in Exaltation Day, it includes what? All three. Exaltation is the day when we can celebrate Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, and then Christ's session, because all of that was necessary to secure our salvation. Just because he died didn't secure our salvation. Just because he was raised from the dead, that didn't secure our salvation. As we'll see a bit later, he had to go to heaven. He had to appear before the Lord. He had to go with his blood in the presence of God as our high priest. Now, obviously, if that makes sense to you, I, I, I think I need to convince you of this. And so I, I want you to go to the book of John. We'll, we'll head to the Hebrews in a minute. But I want to see, uh, show you in John's account of the resurrection how resurrection and the ascension are linked together, how they're associated with one another. In John 20, in John 20 we read John's account of the resurrection. And this obviously is the Sunday, the first day of the week, because it says there in verse 1, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came up to the tomb early while it was still dark, 
She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the only uh, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and other disciples went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Isn't that interesting when John put that in there? I'm faster than Peter. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lined with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she also stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not, and here it is, ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and tell them, or go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. We'll stop there. Now, obviously, here we have an account on the first day of the resurrection. And again, this is obviously Sunday, the first day of the week. The first appearance of Jesus to his disciples, and I don't know if you know this, but there's a bit of a debate on how many appearances Jesus made before he ultimately ascended. Uh, Some say he appeared seven times. Some say he appeared ten times. Some say he appeared twelve times. Uh, We're not going to enter that debate right now. Personally, as I can see it, he appeared ten times before he was ascended. What is not debatable, however, is that from this day, this very first day, to the very last day when he did ascend, it was 40 days. 40 days for those number of appearances. And it was on that 40th day that you read at the end of Acts, or rather at the end of Luke in the first chapter of Acts, where he ascended into heaven, and after that he was exalted. But again, going back up to verse 13, as I kind of hinted, you can see there the link or the association between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. The angel said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus. And then dropping down to verse 16... Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. And I love this. I've always been um, just interested in this whole 
scene here between Jesus and Mary, and especially this in verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her. Isn't that interesting? Once she realized who he was, she just ran and just held on to him for for life, so to speak. His reply, I have not yet ascended to the Father. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, look, I I, I grant, on the surface, it does seem like an odd thing to respond to to Mary. I, I get why she says what she says. She's going to cling to Jesus, of course. I mean, she thought he was dead. Obviously, she's going to hold on to him quite tightly because she doesn't want him to ever go again. What Jesus says to her, however, is a bit surprising. And on the surface, it does does make Jesus come across harsh and a bit short. And that's just in the, the reading of it. Certainly, we can't hear the tone of it. But, of course, we know he is not short and he's not harsh. So, so what's this all about? Why, why does he respond to Jesus this way, or to Mary this way? Why does Jesus respond to Mary this way? Well, I, I could go through all the different interpretations, and you wouldn't believe if you picked up a commentary on John. Pages are, are given to this little account. Pages are given to this verse. What did Jesus mean when he said to Mary, don't cling to me? Um, I'm not going to give you all the interpretations. I'm just going to go straight to where I think he means. And here's the gist of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Mary, do not cling to me. I haven't ascended to the heaven yet. I'll be here for a little while. You, you can kind of understand it that way. Mary, don't cling to me now. Don't, don't hold to me now. I'm going to be here for a while. I'm going to be here for actually 40 days. Also implied here, Jesus is saying, and I love this, Mary, I'm not finished yet. Don't cling to me. I'm not finished yet. The state of my resurrection is not full and complete as I have not yet ascended unto the Father. In other words, don't don't be satisfied with having nothing more than my resurrection as there is a lot more to come. I will ascend to my Father and your Father and I will send the Holy Spirit and I will make you... I mean, there's a whole bunch more to come. Don't cling to me right now. We're not done with this. The point is, I think Jesus is making, is that the resurrection is one thing, but, but there's so much more to come. So much more to come. I, I've got to ascend to my Father. I've got to send the Holy Spirit. I, I guess when you read it that way, circling back around to where I began... This is why when we celebrate the resurrection, we, we better know what we're celebrating. We, we better understand all the implications that come with the resurrection. And really, the, the first one is what? The ascension. Jesus' resurrection was just the beginning. You understand that? Jesus' resurrection was just the beginning. Just, you could say, the start of the new creation and the new covenant. I mean, notice what Jesus says to Mary. It's, it's, it's covenantal language. It reminds us of the Old Testament covenantal language. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. That's covenantal language. So all of that to say, here we are celebrating, as we call it, the resurrection today, Resurrection Sunday. But we can't stop at the resurrection. We have to include the ascension. 
And for that matter, we need to include the session. All of it. All of it, all of it is included, listen, when we talk about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. You remember how Paul puts it in Philippians 2? I mean, he, he, he says, Jesus emptied himself. He came as a servant. He came as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But he doesn't stop there, right? He says, for this reason, Jesus what? Was exalted. For this reason, God exalted him. So, I guess if you're connecting the dots over this weekend, you have Jesus' death. We have Jesus' resurrection. Forty days later, we have Jesus' ascension. And then after the ascension is his session. To make it more poignant, you can't stop at his death. You can't stop at his resurrection. You can't even stop at his ascension. No, you have to go all the way up into heaven to see his session. And, and seeing him in his session, seeing him on his throne, you, you, you see him at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory. You see him there ministering there as our high priest. You see them there, him there interceding on our behalf in the presence of God. Sounds like the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? So let's turn there. Let's, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Because the whole foundation of the, the argument for the book of Hebrews and everything he, he, he wants to say to help these Jewish Christians is founded on, yes, the death of Christ, but also his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. I know these are new words for you today. All of that. Sometimes said specifically, Actually, only one time said specifically. It, it, don't turn there, but in Hebrews 13, 20, the, the benediction that I sometimes give, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. That's resurrection. That's the only time in the book of Hebrews that the writer mentions the resurrection specifically. Everything else is, is by way of implication or an illusion. But it's there. And I want to show you this real quickly. We're going to fly through Hebrews and then we're going to come back and make some applications out of this. So you're starting at Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets as different, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And, and then this, God has appointed him heir of all things. When did that happen? Have you ever stopped to ask that? When did God make him heir of all things? Well, that's easy to answer. When he was what? When he was exalted to heaven. And then verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sins, that, that's, that's when he, his work on earth, that's when he died. Purifications for sins is the forgiveness of sins. Remember, again, Romans 4.25, he was handed over for our sins. What happened after that? Well, look at what it says. After he made purifications for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, that's session. Crucifixion. What's in the middle? What, what did he bypass? Resurrection and accession. But it's all there. You see that? 
He's jumped from the cross to the coronation. And by the way, that that theme is throughout the book. In fact, if you go down to verse 5, notice how he quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, Verse 8, but to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Down at verse 13, now to which of the angels he has ever said, sit at my hand, which I make your enemies your footstool. Now, why is he bringing in Psalm 2? We discussed this way back when. But the point is that Jesus is greater than the angels. So for intertestamental period, they worshipped angels, they venerated angels. We won't go back into explaining all that. I mean, if you're wondering, it's kind of odd that he's going to make an argument. Jesus is greater than the, the, the priest, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than um, Aaron, and I understand all that because they were wanting to head back to Judaism. But why start with Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, again, intertestamental period time, these Jews... Uh, even these Jewish Christians were struggling with the thought that, well, maybe the angels are to be venerated. Maybe they are to be worshipped. And his, and right out of the blocks, he says, no, 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 you can't worship angels. They're just ministering spirits. You see that at verse 14. If they're ministering spirits, who is Jesus? And why is he greater? He's king. That's the whole point of the, uh, the opening chapter of, of Hebrews. He is a king. He's also a son. He makes the same point over in chapter 3. This is, this is the Jesus who has sat down at the right hand of God upon a throne of power. That's how he opens the book. And we'll see this theme over and over again. It's, cro- it's cross to kingship. Cross to kingship, death to the throne. Again, it's implied. Resurrection, the incession. They're not mentioned here, but they're there. Go over to chapter 4. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Look, that, that's, that's not stating it specifically, but boy, you can't get any closer to the fact that it's speaking of what? The ascension there. I mean, he's passing through the heavens. Go over to Hebrews 6.20. Hebrews 6.20, Jesus has entered, the, entered where? He's entered heaven on our behalf. Go over to Hebrews 7.24. But because he remains forever. Remains where? He remains there. He reigns in heaven. Hebrews 7.26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and what? Exalted above the heavens. Now we know Jesus died. We know he was raised from the dead. But it doesn't end at the resurrection. He's exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 8.1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's his session. What's implied in all that? His resurrection and ascension. Go over to Hebrews 9. Again, we're flying through this. Hebrews 9.11. But Christ has appeared. Appeared where? Have you ever asked that? He's appeared. He's appeared in heaven as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not an earthly tabernacle. Verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all time. He's entered heaven. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. 
And here it is, verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Where's Jesus? Well, he's alive. He's risen. But he's ascended. He's entered. He's appeared in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifices for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. I think that's three or four times now. The, the theme of crucifixion to kingship. And I'm putting that way, or, or, or crucifixion to coronation, however you want to put it, just, just to capture it. Death to throne. Go over to Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the what? Blood of Jesus. What does that imply? It implies that the blood's there. The heavenly sanctuary. And then, maybe one more. I won't give you all of them. I think you get the point. Go over to Hebrews 12, too. And here again is that same theme. For the joy that lay before him, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. There's the cross. He despised the shame. No mention of the resurrection after that. No mention of the ascension. Straight to the session. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you, you, you've got Hebrews 13, 20. That's explicit. You get a very close reference to the resurrection back in chapter 4, verse 14, when he's passing through the heavens. But all throughout the book, it's there. It's not applied. It's not mentioned explicitly, but it is implied. The, author's, the resurrection is a big deal to the author. His death is a big deal to the author. The ascension is a big deal to the author. And certainly his session is a big deal to the author. And these Jewish Christians need to know that. Again, put it all together, it's called what? The exaltation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' exaltation above the heavens assumes the resurrection, ascension, session. Jesus' kingship assumes the resurrection, ascension, session. Jesus' inheritance assumes all that. Jesus' glory and honor assumes all of that. Jesus' sonship assumes all that. Jesus' high priesthood assumes all that. Jesus' intercession assumes all that. Jesus' mediation of a new covenant assumes all that. And guess what? Jesus' second coming assumes all that. Did you catch all that? And that's just in the book of Hebrews. Now you're saying, well, okay, Todd, that's wonderful. That is fresh. I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't really seen that in the book of Hebrews. I mean, yeah, I do stop at the resurrection. I hadn't really thought a whole much about the ascension. I hadn't really thought about him sitting down at the right hand of God and what we call the session. But what's the upshot of it all? What's the so what of it all? Let's talk about that and give you even more reasons to celebrate. I put a little list together here, and we're going to have to fly through it. But I put a, 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 a list together of some practical ways to celebrate Christ's exaltation, not just his resurrection, but including 
his ascension and session. Okay? And we'll see how far we get. I, I, I did jot down a number of things, and we'll stop when we have to, and we'll just pick it up next time we, we get together. But here's the first one. Here, here's the first one I want you to think about. And if you don't get anything else this morning, get this one. Number one, listen carefully. Our atonement, or you can say our salvation, is only finished in the exaltation of Christ. You catch that? Let me say that again. Our atonement, our salvation, is only completed in the exaltation of Christ. And put it another way. Jesus' accomplishment of redemption and atonement for our sins finds its final fulfillment in heaven. With the emphasis in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we talked about Jesus died for my sins and we just leave it there. Or, or Jesus died for my sins and was raised again and we just leave it there. But remember, he's our high priest as we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. And, and that imagery of the high priest goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember on the Day of Atonement. Remember Yom Kippur. He, the, the priest makes the sacrifice outside and he doesn't just stay outside, does he? No, he has to take the sacrifice. He has to take the blood and go where? Into the sanctuary, into the temple. And then even into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is, where God himself is present and present that blood before him as an atonement. He doesn't just stop at the, the altar back outside. No, he, he takes the sacrifice and goes straight all the way in. And that same picture is same picture Hebrews is giving us with Jesus and his sacrifice. Listen again to Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But Christ has appeared as a high priest, the good things that have come in the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of bulls and goats, by his own blood. And here, listen to this. Having obtained eternal redemption... Did you catch that? Eternal redemption. Or you might have securing an eternal redemption. Both are fine. Our, our, our redemption was completed when he entered heaven. Not just when he died. Not just when he was raised from the dead. Not even when he ascended. It's, well, I could, you could say when he ascended, when he passed through the clouds and entered heaven. And after he presented his blood after he sanctified heaven he then sat down and entered his session Hebrews 9:26 says he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself this is the wonderful thing about the gospel the gospel is that Jesus died yes unlike the old testament where they sacrificed bulls and goats but bulls and goats wouldn't take away sin. It took away sin temporarily. And that's why Hebrews says this is an eternal redemption. Back in the Old Testament, it, it, it's a temporal redemption. This is an eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats, yeah. God was in the midst and God was holy and you needed to be holy in the way that, that the holiness was, was, was permeated is because he said sacrifice the 
bulls and goats so that that blood would be an atonement for your sins, but the atonement for the sins was always temporary. Uh, even Yom Kippur came over around every single year. And the writer of Hebrews wants to say, well, you, you're not going back to Judaism, are you? Because Judaism is over and over and over again. And Jesus, he took his own blood. He was the sacrifice. And then he was also the high priest. And he appeared before God with his own blood. And he did it once for all, securing your eternal redemption. And once he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the God Most High. Once for all. Capture that. Once for all. I mean, you have Roman Catholic friends that every, every week in Mass, they what? Believe that they're sacrificing Christ over and over again. Just like the Levitical priests were sacrificing the bulls and goats over and over again. And, and the beauty of the Gospel is Jesus isn't sacrificed over and over again. It, it was once for all. One sacrifice. One day. And God raised him from the dead. You know, when Jesus said it was finished, what did he mean by that? I mentioned that on Friday. When Jesus said it is finished before giving up his last breath and dying on the cross, he certainly wasn't talking about salvation. Because if he just said he, he had to be raised and he had to go up and he had to take his blood into the, into the holy sanctuary and present it before God... And then when he sat down, then that was finished. So what did he mean back on the cross? Well, I would say what he meant by it is finished is that all the Old Testament prophecies about his death have been finished. All the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and his coming and about his dying. You know, we read Isaiah 53. The, the, the finish is completed. But our salvation isn't. Jesus had to be exalted. So back to our point. The point is our atonement, our salvation is only finished in the exaltation of Christ. And I say, isn't that worth celebrating? Well, let's move on. Number two. And, and look, there's no order here. I just jotted them down as they popped in my head. I could have gone back and reordered them, but I didn't. Here's number two. Our preaching the gospel is grounded in the exaltation of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Our preaching the gospel is grounded in the exaltation of Christ. And, and quite frankly, I take, it, take the book of Hebrews as an example. The whole book is known as a short word of exhortation. It's a proclamation, though it's in, in written form. But the whole book in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaiming the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Remember how Peter also got in on this. Remember in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, he says this at the end of his sermon, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Resurrection, ascension. I mean, Lord and Messiah assumes that he sat down. And you mentioned the crucifixion, but and you mentioned the session, but where's the resurrection and the... It's there. It's there. Paul says, and does something similar in his sermon on, uh, in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. Remember, he's, he, he's, he's there 
In Athens, he goes out and preaches to the Gentiles, and he says this at the end, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That sounds like the reign of Christ. That sounds like the crowning of Christ. And then he says this, He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's the resurrection. Obviously, the man is Jesus, and Jesus is going to judge. And the reason Jesus is going to judge because he's the Lord of all. And the reason he's the Lord of all is because God raised him from the dead. You, you see how it, it all fits together. So, our preaching, our preaching the gospel needs to be grounded in the exaltation of Christ. Let me move on to number three. Here's another practical aspect of understanding all this. Number three, our union with Christ is based on the full exaltation of Christ. You know, we talk about our union with Christ. That's Paul's favorite little phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But how are we in Christ? What, what, what is the foundation of us being in Christ? And I would answer the exaltation of Christ. I mean, the, the book of Hebrews implies this, but let me give you a couple of verses outside of Hebrews that, that are probably more familiar. Don't turn there, but just listen. Colossians 3. Paul says, So if you have been raised with Christ. I mean, if you're a Christian, he's saying you, you've been raised with Christ. And if you have, seek the things above where Christ is. Where's Christ? Seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on the earthly things. Why? Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Paul's a bit more specific over in Ephesians 2. I love this. Back in Ephesians 1, he talks about how God made him alive and raised him up and seated him up in the heavenlies. And there's the resurrection, there's the ascension, and there's the session in three words made him alive, raised him up, seated him. But over in Ephesians 2, he says the same thing about us. He said, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. In other words, and it's interesting, the language is in, is in the present tense. is as if when, when God raised Jesus or let me say it this way, when God made Jesus alive, when God raised Jesus up, and when God seated him in the heavenlies, he's saying, you were right there in, with him when that happened. Does that make sense? So the point is, our union with Christ is based on the full exaltation of Christ. Not just his death, not just his resurrection, but his ascension and session as well. And again, the present tense points out that it's as if we're already there. I mean, we're here, we're not there, but it's good as gold. Number four, coming back to Hebrews, our faith is our faith in Christ is strengthened when we look to the exaltation of Christ. Let me say that again. Our faith in Christ is strengthened when we look to the exaltation of Christ. Again, remember the, the context of the Hebrews. We've been going through it, so you, you know it. Th these young Christians, 
these young Jewish Christians, their faith is, is wavering, their faith is shaky, their faith is immature, and the writer of Hebrews wants to help them, he wants to encourage them, and the question is, well, what's, what's the remedy to their unbelief? And we, we pointed out, this is a great book for us who are counselors, because we all know people whose faith is shaky and wavering. How do you help them? Well, do what the writer of Hebrews does. Point them to Christ. Isn't that the message in, in a nutshell? Look to Christ. Consider Christ. Keep your eyes on, on Christ. That's Hebrews 12 too. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the exalted Christ. Why? Because therein lies the source of weak faith in order to be strengthened. When you look at Christ... And you look at the exalted Christ who's sitting at the right hand of God, who, who's been given glory and honor, who is reigning and is interceding on our behalf, and our salvation is secure. Uh, what's there to worry about? What's, what's the uncertainty about? What's the doubt about? What's the fear about? So if we want our faith strengthened, look to the exaltation of Christ. That's great advice. Number five. Number five, our hope of heaven is secure only because of the exaltation of Christ. Did you catch that? Our hope of heaven is secure only because of the exaltation of Christ. I get this from Hebrews 6.20 if you want to have a look. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner, inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus, and this is why we have hope, has entered there on our behalf as a, and Christian Standard Bible has forerunner. You might have something else like a trailblazer. What's, what is he talking about? You understand that the only reason you and I can go into heaven is because he's gone in there before us. You remember how he told his disciples, ah, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, uh, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? How is he going to prepare a place for us? Well, he's going to prepare a place because he's taken his own sacrificial blood and has cleansed the place, has sanctified the place as a, a trailblazer, as our foreigner, so that we can come behind him. And in that, that's why we have hope of heaven. Number six. Number six. Our boldness of coming to God in prayer is only because of the exaltation of Christ. Right of Hebrews speaks quite a bit about unique boldness. But where's that boldness going to come from? Where our boldness of God, especially when it comes to prayer, is only going to be because of the exaltation of Christ. He says this in Hebrews 4, Therefore let us approach the throne of wraith with boldness. Okay. How? how, how, how? I, I get I, I need to come to God with boldness and confidence. And, and certainly these Jewish Christians were, were not doing that. But maybe we understand something of that. Where's that boldness going to come from? Back up in verse 15. 
Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. It's because we have a great high priest who's in heaven, not on earth, who's interceding on our behalf. And all the work is done. Going back to point one, why wouldn't you have boldness? Hebrews 10 says the same thing. Same subject comes up in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. I know we all struggle in our prayer life. If you don't struggle in your prayer life, you've never prayed, right? All of us want more confidence and boldness. Probably want more consistency. Love to pray more. And more confidently. Well, take on this point. I, I think if we fully grasp the exaltation of Christ, we would not just be bolder in our prayers, but we would pray more consistently. And that's the point of writer of Hebrews. Let me give you one more. And we'll pick up the rest some other time. Number seven, if you're wondering, I did have 14. But this is a good place to stop, and we'll do the other seven some other time. Our love for Christ is engendered when we meditate upon the exaltation of Christ. I think I've said this before. Every time I read the Puritans, and maybe you have read them as well, and maybe you get the same point as I'm going to make, is that, boy, they seem to have loved Christ. The way they express it in words, and I'm sure the way they express it in words on the page is how they express it verbally as well in their preaching. And I read that, and I read how much they loved Christ, they adored Christ, and I feel guilty because I'm like, I'm not there. I'm like Peter. I like you a lot. So how are we going to engender our love for Christ? I would suggest our love for Christ is engendered when we meditate upon the exaltation of Christ, and especially when we think of him interceding for us. If we truly understand what that means. Remember in Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Paul gets in, gets in on this as well in Romans 8.34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And more than Hebrews, Paul gets, what, raised or died, raised, and the right hand of God. And tells us what God's doing now. You ever wonder what God's doing now? He's, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Is he just sitting there? Just all 2,000 years later waiting for the Father to give the nod to say, go again? No, he's interceding on behalf of his own. What does that mean? Again, Mark Jones, I thought was helpful in this. He says, since Christ always lives, he always intercedes. There is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. Think about that. Indeed, if you are a Christian, it is precisely because the Son presented your name to his, and now your 
father. He could perhaps have sacrificed millions of worlds of innocent men and angels, but even these sacrifices would pale in comparison with the worth of Christ's bloody sacrifice. Christians must know that all Christ had to do was raise his hands before the Father and their name appeared, which was enough to bring them into possession of eternal life. Charlie Bancroft expressed this idea well in this hymn, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thus depart. Jones concludes, Because Christ is ever living to intercede for us, we can be sure of his love. And my point is, when we know Christ's love, because he's the exalted Christ, that should engender us of love right back to him. If you want your heart simulated, you want your heart fanned, maybe your heart is cold at the moment. How do you get it warm? How do you get it hot? Well, look at the exalted Christ. Look at the exalted Christ, that Christ not only died for us, not only was raised for us, not only was ascended for us, but he is sitting at the right hand of God on his throne for us. Now, ultimately, it's all for him. But because we are in Christ, we can say it's for us. We'll stop there, but let's come back wrapping this up to the question I posed at the beginning. Yes, it's Resurrection Sunday, but I, I would love for us to think about more than just the resurrection. Think about his ascension Think about his session. And in a word, we'll call it his exaltation. Let me leave the last word this morning to R.C. Sproul. He asked the question, why don't we celebrate the ascension? He says, the church in our day doesn't understand the significance of this redempted historical event. We get all excited about the atonement. We get all excited about the resurrection. We get all excited about the return of Jesus. But we hardly even celebrate the ascension and session of Christ. We act as if we were still living in the Old Testament. We look with envy at the people who lived on the earth when Jesus was there. We long to be numbered among those who were alive at his return. And we think in the interim, in between time, we are of all people the most unfortunate because we have to live in his absence. Now, Sproul says, when Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving, they were filled with sorrow. Their hearts were troubled. But what we find is that after Jesus was taken from them, he ascended before their very eyes. They returned to Jerusalem rejoicing. And they were found praising God all around the town. Now what happened between the time that Jesus first told them, I'm leaving, and, and, they, and when they were filled with sorrow, and the time when he actually left and their hearts were filled with joy? How do we account for that radical change in their disposition towards his departure? How could... Anyone be happy about Jesus' leaving? Well, Sproul says, the reason for their joy is simple. They came to understand why he left, where he was going, and what he would be doing. End quote.
Can I suggest that if that was the disciples, how much more for us to understand why Jesus left, why he was going, where he was going, what he is doing, and then it all can be answered in the exaltation of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that is clear. Thank you that is deep. That the mind of God is, is not trivial. We can plumb the depths of it and reach no end. And trust, Lord, that even this morning as we perhaps have thought about some things for the fresh time, that it has engendered our love towards you, our thanksgiving toward you. Lord, that it has fanned the flame so our hearts are hot and zealous for you. And that in return we can be obedient to you, serving you, all the things that you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you that, that you did raise Jesus from the dead. Thank you that did ascend into heaven. We thank you that he took his own blood, his own sacrifice, and he presented it before you, that you re received it, and that you've crowned him with all, all the glory and all the honor, and that now he is seating sitting at your right hand. We could even say our worship could be enhanced by the exaltation of Christ. We go to the book of Revelation. Who do we see there? We see the exalted Christ. We see him in all his glory. As it should, there is a worship service going on there. All the angels, all the elders, crowning him, praising him. Lord, may we join them in our mind's eye as we see him in his exalted state. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.